Hello, and welcome to Two Worlds, One Country. I'm your host, Anthony Flacavento, and we're here on WEHC and WISEY's FM, as well as on podcasts for Apple and Spotify and many other platforms, I believe. So we're delighted today to have you back listening in as we continue our conversation about the underlying causes of what divides us, and then the mechanisms, the ideas, the strategies that might help us overcome the divides. Today's guest is a dear friend and a longtime colleague in efforts to build a more sustainable food and farming system in Southwest Virginia and across the country, Richard Moyer. Richard is a professor of biology, and he is a full-time commercial organic farmer with a very diverse small farm in rural Russell County, Virginia. So, Richard, welcome to Two Worlds, One Country. Good to be here. Great. So we start all of our shows with our guests by asking them to tell us a little bit about themselves. And I would like you to do that. We will get to your your current life. But just start with kind of where and how you grew up. I grew up in Augusta, Georgia, close to the Savannah River, uh, the fall line, a huge amount of biodiversity there. Kids, we grew up playing in the river, fishing and swimming and just enjoying life, being outdoors. My parents both grew up in the country, uh, on farms, farming, multi-generational, but then moved to the city for work. But we had a large suburban garden, grew a huge amount of food, fruit, and preserved it. Uh, and then on the, even on our vacations, we went to places where we gleaned fruit, food or we would do you pick or catch things at the ocean, all kinds of crabs and fish and shrimp and preserve some of it. So food was a huge part of my life growing up. Extended family friends would come over, we processed food together. So much of my life early on was centered around growing food and um, doing food together with other people and building a community that way. Yeah, a couple of follow-up questions on that. Um, first one is, what what was the city or the suburbs of the city that your folks moved to? Uh, that was Augusta, Georgia. Augusta, Georgia. Okay. All right. And what's the time frame on that? Not not to date yourself, Richard, but what was, oh, what was oh. the time frame? <laughs> yeah, I was born in 1960, uh, and I was there for my first 20 years. Uh, I lived at home my first year of college, believe in community colleges. Uh, and then transferred and went to a, a small private school in Northwest Georgia, another beautiful place. Uh, Southern Appalachians come down there. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing is you, in an exchange we had earlier, you mentioned about what you would do, what you enjoyed most when your family traveled to, I think it was Disney World. But tell us about that. It, it, this is a great story that, that uh, reveals a lot about you. Yeah, we stayed with friends uh, who had been in Augusta and he went down there to build a huge bridge over Tampa Bay. He was a lead engineer in that, but we stayed with him and we went to Disney world. Uh, and we would stand for hours in the hot sun. just spend a few minutes on a ride, uh, and then uh, run and get in the line again for hours in the hot sun, which uh, seemed torture to me, but, but the delight of each day was we camped in orange groves, citrus groves. And my friend and I, we would go and we would climb in the top of these trees for the very best fruit. He was the catcher on the little league team, and I'd throw down the oranges and the grapefruit. <laughs> and we'd bring back, we had an old station wagon, and bring back the well full of citrus and eat on it for weeks and weeks. Uh, and that was a highlight of my trip, was first time in my life picking 
fresh citrus, you know, and touching and seeing the tree. I love orange juice. Uh, and just seeing the trees where that came from. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm guessing that there are a few other people in the United States of America who, as young people, would have preferred to be out and about, gleaning, picking, climbing trees while they were vacationing at Disney World. But I'm I'm guessing you're in the one percent there, Richard. It might be the only way you're a one percenter, but I think that's that's really a remarkable story. So you have a, a very diverse farm, as I mentioned. But be, before we get to that, you also went beyond um, a four-year degree and, and got a PhD. Tell us quickly about that. Yes. Uh, my parents instilled in me a love of growing. I was a biology, chemistry double major at Shorter University in Northwest Georgia. Wanted to go to grad school related to food. And so I applied to um, uh, Cornell up in the Northeast. I applied to Arizona State and food systems in the desert. I applied to Oregon State, Texas A&M, visited multiple schools, and was accepted into a biochemistry food science program at Oregon State, a land-grant university, which is hugely important, and um, did graduate work in food science and classes and research in food science and food toxicology. And, and that's, tell me what your PhD was in? Looking at uh, a toxin that's in grain and in peanuts uh, and seeing how it causes cancer. And most importantly, fish was our model, rainbow trout. And we could give them cancers easily uh, with this carcinogen that's in our food and trace amounts. But we could uh, really slow down or eliminate the cancer formation with a diet that was rich uh, in green vegetables or alliums such as garlic and onions. So just seeing the effect of whole foods to prevent cancer or to greatly reduce the amount of cancer. Um, and, and throughout my life, I've continued to grow whole foods, make them available to other people because it helps us avoid major diseases. That's so interesting to me that on, on the one hand, growing up uh, first in very rural Georgia and then kind of on the outskirts of, of rural Georgia in a, in a uh, small city, you were really schooled uh, through your own adventures and your parents and others in the critical importance of food, both as sustenance, but as health. And then you go off to get a PhD. So often when people go off to get a PhD, they either remove themselves or become removed from those kinds of holistic roots. And and in the process of specializing in their education, they kind of lose sight of the bigger picture. But it sounds like your education didn't contradict the education you got growing up in the woods and on in the gardens of Georgia? Well, it's helpful if you're willing to be the 1%. <laughs> Wendell Berry and Hannah Coulter and that novel, he, he really highlights the, um, the, the draw of education to uproot people, to remove them from the things that, that made sense in their communities, that bound their communities together uh, through good times and hard times. And so I... Barry's writing and some other people as well have been really a touchstone to help me. Yeah, and, and myself as well. I've read many, many, many Wendell books and essays. Um, and, and he speaks about how so often education and then the, the rewards of specialized work that follow um, estranges us from those roots yes. and alienates yes. us. And you're about yes. as, as unestranged a guy as I know from 
from his immediate surroundings, wherever those are. So, so tell my us. Neighbors, uh, go ahead. My neighbors still think we're strange, but that's okay. <laughs> strange, but not estranged. Okay, that's that's what we're gonna put on your tombstone, Richard. I hope you don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so let's talk a little bit about your farm. When I first met you, I think it was the first time we met, or it was one, it was early on. You had a, a kind of an urban homestead, raising all yes. kinds of different perennials, fruits, and vegetables, as well as a good-sized garden and, and recycling the nutrients right right in the in the city of Bristol. But you've gone beyond that now and have a, a good for Appalachia. Uh, a good size, mid-sized farm, and you do a whole lot of different things on that farm. Tell us a little about it. Well, the place in Bristol, I wanted to be able to walk or bike to work at King University. When we moved there in 92, so we looked around and we bought good bottom soil. Uh, it was a two-acre plot, and we grew most of our food and vegetables. Um, five of our six kids were born while we we're there, and we had over 250 fruit bushes, over 20 different kinds of fruit, trees, nuts, berries, vines, all kinds of stuff. And our neighbors there, they blessed us, uh, and they said, you folks need to get a farm. <laughs> <laughs> I think sometimes they wanted to get rid of us. Sometimes they just saw our love, and they saw that we needed room to expand. And so we looked with the help of um, NRCS and found a really good farm in Russell County with good soils. And first of all, before that, we interned uh, on Rothy Cattle Company. And Dave Rothy, who was a vet, wonderful teacher. Uh, he taught us for six months how to care for his herd of Devon cattle. And then he moved the other six months to another farm and left us. And he taught me and my kids how to raise cattle and poultry and hogs on grass. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. While we were there, we ran into neighbors and they taught us how to make maple syrup. They taught us how to butcher hogs in a community setting, how to do molasses, a wide, wide variety of community coming together to preserve food things that work, as Wendell would say, um, what works here, and that's largely local, uh, unique, and largely oral. And so we greatly benefited from the oral learning of people that came together and showed us how to grow food, things that work in this area. So l let me ask you a quick question, because we're in, in a short while, we're going to get towards talking about the divide. But um, it sounds like your neighbors in Russell County welcomed you. Now, you, you're a Southern boy, so you, you talk not that differently from how, how, we talk, how we talk in Appalachia, but you're a highly educated um, gentleman. And I wonder, I think the, the notion that a lot of city folks and liberals have is that rural people are always suspicious or almost always suspicious and unwelcoming of, of new people, of different people. So, so tell us, did you get any of that kind of uh, unwelcoming reception or did you, for the most part, find people uh, just were glad that you came and were happy to share their knowledge? Again, Dave Rothy, he told us when we first started farming full time, he sat us down, my wife and I, and he said, you need to know you're stupid. You're ignorant. He said, it's both the curse and the blessing. The curse is you're going to make a lot of mistakes and you're, not, you're going to need help. It would be helpful if you admit your mistakes and see them. The second is you're not wedded to the mistakes of the past or the mistakes of an area. And so it gives you opportunity to learn from a variety of people of new ways, different ways of doing things. And he also had a library, uh, encouraged us to read, but he really encouraged us to just go for it and be humble and, and know you're going to mess up and be willing to learn from your neighbors. He was a great example of benefiting from his neighbors, curious guy. So he set the example for us. 
So we moved here. I think I told you one of the people came over and his housewarming gift was a feed sack of turnips. <laughs> and he said, I figure you folks know how to use this. Word got around uh, that we like to do our own food. And so we live close to the road. Uh, I'm, I'm good at breaking things as a farmer. <laughs> and we had many neighbors who grown up, you know, leaning over the hood of a truck or, you know, fixing things. And so when I let it be known I, at their mercy, I'm trying to learn how to farm and trying to figure out what works here. They came and they just would jump right in. Um, my tiller fell apart one time and I was just beside myself. I needed it. And the neighbor just came over and said, well, let's just take it apart and fix it. And I looked at him like he had three heads. He looked at me like I was stupid because I was. <laughs> because you didn't know how to take it apart, and let alone to put it I've back together. I've never done it because that's always something somebody else does. Right. Some some person somewhere always does that kind of thing. And I knew nothing about those people. Just that was a transaction. But here it's a way of life. Yeah. Yeah. Really. That's, that's excellent. And then the farm itself, you raise produce. You raise cattle for beef. What else do you raise? But both for let let's talk about it in in two ways. Both for yourself, for your family's, yes. uh, the family economy or the household economy, as Wendell would say. But then you sell a good bit of stuff too. Tell us a little bit about both of those. Well, we do corn. We have a corn crib here, as a lot of old farmers area do. Um, and then we have food year round. As far as greens year round, uh, over time I've specialized into mushrooms. Uh, so we do a lot of shiitake mushrooms. Uh, a guy's coming over today, a customer from the farmer's market to learn how to do shiitakes this afternoon. We'll be doing inoculated shiitake logs. And I've really focused on the fall, winter, and spring. Uh, Kara Bishop, one of our customers, uh, I remember her saying, what are we going to do after December? We don't want to wait till April for your food. And it was the customers at the market that pushed us to bring food year round. So I've really specialized in vegetables and mushrooms and having beef all winter, having maple syrup, molasses, other canned goods available. So really tried to learn how to have food year round and excess for customers. And there's probably not much of anything that you grow to sell that you don't also use yourself. Is that right? Right. Yeah. There, there's a, you know, there's this sad uh, disconnect of so many farmers, uh, and again, as Wendell so well points out, that uh, they make a living farming, but they got to go to the grocery store to get any calories. And that's just another divide and disconnect that, that it wasn't always that way. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. No, 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 but we can find people who still are largely self-sufficient or at least some measure of that, or at least have that living memory. Right, right. And some of the capacity to be so. That's the other thing is you can't, it's, it's a little like my, my mom was a classical musician and she, she taught voice and piano and violin. And, and yes. I always said that of, of all those instruments, violin is the toughest one. I said, you, you know, you can't love violin playing from a totally unskilled novice. It's just horrible. <laughs> you've, got to, you've got to develop a certain threshold of skills before you can make a violin sound kind of nice. And I think it's true of so many things. We need a, a basic capacity, a basic uh, kind of catalog of, of skills in order to bring out of the earth the stuff we need or to fix the things that we use to, to, to raise the crops and the animals. Yes. In living in a community, fortunately, we live close to the road. A lot of neighbors driving by or just walking by, whatever, they see what we're doing. And that's, that's been an important part of where we are, our location, is that uh, people are welcome in. And so we wave to folks and they stop by and they're curious, ask what's going on. And um, again, just, just having an open door, a welcome uh, to be on the farm and see what I'm doing really helps. 
And this has been really uh, very much part of the, the life of your family. It's not just you kind of in opposition, but it's your wife and it's your kids that are all both participating, but from everything I can tell, mostly pretty willing participants because they, they've had a hand in, in specific enterprises as part of the farm. Well, that's true. Uh, we've homeschooled all our kids, uh, and all of them now have attended a local community college. And we really believe in delight-directed learning, learning through doing on the farm. Did you, excuse me, and, did, you and, say, did you say delight-directed learning? Yes, allowing Whoa. the kids to develop their own enterprises, to read books about kids learning to do those things. Uh, and the whole thing of delayed gratification when we grow seed for southern exposure, when a kid has a contract uh, to grow a certain crop, they, they contract in February, they start growing the transplants or seed it out in the spring, have to get it through all the, the bugs and the pestilence and the weather and everything and harvest the crop, get it dry, send it off, test germ. And then, you know, if it tests germ, then they get paid. So it's a year long process. Hmm. Wonderful. Well, let's let's shift just a hair to, to begin talking about the divide. So you straddled two worlds. You were a full-time professor at King University yes. and a part-time yes. kind of homestead farmer. And then, what was it, 20-ish years ago, you, you flipped the script, and now you've been, you are and you've been, a full-time farmer and a part-time teacher. So what have you picked up from that? Because the academic world tends to be part of the more elite world that, uh, let's say, liberals and city folks are more comfortable with. It's, it's more part of their experience. And then the world of hands-on learning, the world of farming or a mechanical work, tends to be more rural and, and these days populated more by conservatives uh, than by liberals. So, it's, so that, that whole thing of education versus farming is a piece of the divide. What What's your sense of that, and what have you picked up from that? Well, you're right. Uh, when I did a sabbatical in Korea in 2000, uh, faculty members there in Seoul, uh, they were aghast that I was somebody who taught full-time and grew food. To them, the, the, the height of success is when you no longer have to grow food. But again, that, as we mentioned before, that, that, then you're uh, estranged. Yeah, or so, or I, 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 I would add, or fix your own tiller, or your own yes, car, or yes, your toaster. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yes, and they, they were so surprised that I willingly would choose that. And so I tried to flip the script and say, you know, just, well, no, that's uh, not what I'd rather be. I'd rather uh, be intimately involved uh, in all of those aspects of life and use all of our gifts. Uh, so it was really just, in Korea, the, the faculty there were so willing to, to raise those questions and express that and talk about that just doesn't make sense. So when I was willing to do that transition, thinking about the transition from full-time teaching to full-time farming, you may remember I came and knocked on your door because I needed help because, you know, here's one crazy idea and uh, I needed your blessing or at least, you know, a sounding board. And so you met me and welcomed me in and uh, we talked it through and you talked about how tough it is uh, to be a full-time farmer, but the joys of it. And it gave me permission to leave full-time teaching and go to part-time and then go into full-time farming. I, I got to just say that hearing, reminding me of that story, which I'd forgotten of you coming and talking to me, the way you put it, that you came seeking my blessing makes me feel like Don Flacavento. <laughs> <laughs> I don't recall you kissing my hand before you left, but maybe you did. So, so this is, uh, 
one piece of this, you're, you're not somebody who in any way disdains higher education. You went through it yourself. You've encouraged your kids. You absolutely are somebody who learns from books and learns from um, highly educated people in the formal sense. But I'm wondering about this, where education plays into this, because it does seem that certain kinds of education is considered to be education, and that's formal, academic setting, book learning, and that other kinds of education, like knowing how to deal with mechanics, knowing how to manage animals, many, many other things, are really considered not to be education, that that experience-based learning is, is really excluded when we talk about well-educated people. Do, do you think that's the case? And, and if so, how do we bridge that piece of the divide? Yeah, that's a good question. I think farming in the open, like I said, because we, we farm close to the road, we go to the farmer's market year-round and be willing to have those conversations. Uh, like I said, there's a customer coming over today to learn how to do how to grow mushrooms. So being willing to have people on our farm, uh, go and learn from other people, faculty from Emory and Henry, shop at the farmer's market, faculty and staff from local colleges, and just making the time to talk with those folks and check in on one another, I think really helps. So you're saying that uh, farmer's market customers, most of whom, not all, but most of whom would not be farmers, would maybe have a little garden, maybe not, but basically are town folks. We don't don't have cities in this part of the world. That you're finding that they're eager to learn and you know, what they don't know about whether it's to learn to do it themselves or simply to understand the process you use. Right, right. Yeah, we talk about their attempts to try to grow something. And, uh, you know, we laugh about, you know, my failures. And it gives them permission to fail as well. I think that's one of the most important things is, as you know, farming is humbling. Boy, is that, <laughs> that's an understatement. <laughs> but, but so when my customers try to do something, uh, you know, we just we commiserate together. And that really helps. And so making those connections help. If it's just a potted plant or, you know, their first attempt to try to grow a tomato or, you know, keep greens from freezing or whatever, and they ask me what I'm doing, I can give them some tips. So mm-hmm. yeah. just to come together and say we're, we're in a journey of food production together. Right, right. That's so good. Yeah, and because you have a Ph.D., you say farming is humbling. And because I don't, I say farming is a relentless ass-kicking. It's basically (laughs) what it is, but humbling indeed. So um, let's wrap up by talking about some of the things that you're already doing or perhaps ideas of things you would like to do where you see um, elements of overcoming the divide or bridging the divide. What are the kinds of things that you do, the kinds of things you'd like to see done more of that you think can bring people together both across kind of different levels of education, uh, but also different geography, ge- geography, city folks and country folks? I think one of the most important educations for me in ongoing education is important is being an election officer for local elections. That is being the one who checks people in, who assists them at the voting booth, and people of all persuasions, whether Democrat, Republican, Independent, in our community, we come together every election. We do training beforehand, and we get through the day together. And that's just such a wonderful reminder that we're all in this together, that we can come together 
and as citizens take voting uh, seriously, but, but again, have fun in it. And just to see people from all walks of life to come together that day and know at the end of the day that we did our best uh, and all our numbers line up. And there's a real joy in that of us all coming together for elections. And then when I see those folks around town and all other different walks of life, but then we come back together for that task at hand, voting together, there, there's real joy in that and, and uh, purpose in that. Mm-hmm. And, and I've heard some other people talk about feeling, people who are poll watchers or working elections, feeling intimidated, uh, feeling anxious about it. I wonder if it's your attitude or if it's the creds you've built as a, as a farmer and a member, active member of the community that kind of enables you to see the good in that experience. It helps to be on the inside. Hmm. Uh, so it helps to be curious. And, and so many people, again, that assist in elections are elderly, and we need middle-aged and younger folks to come along and help us out. And thankfully, we've had a few younger people that have started. But if you really want to know your community, um, it's a wonderful way to serve. And it seems like that's just part of the continuum, because I know you're also very involved in, um, in talking to civic organizations, to garden clubs and churches, and you're involved in community gardens and all that. So they the coming together that happens periodically, but not very often at the time of elections, you're, you're creating or, um, or taking advantage of other ways that people are coming together, kind of recreating community. Yes, yes. You mentioned I give talks to master gardener groups, and I'll be giving one on season extension uh, for farmers uh, in Smith County here next month. And then also this summer, we'll be using the community cannery, which is huge. As I said, I think that's the best type of community center when people from a wide variety of backgrounds and education come together to preserve food together. You know, our state senator uh, who sadly died, uh, Ben Chafin, uh, his family still comes and puts up food. Uh, Our boards of supervisors, folks come and put up. But then people from all walks of life, we come together and help one another and learn from one another how to use that community resource and preserve food for the winter. And I'll just clarify for folks who aren't familiar with that, uh, canneries, community canneries, are something that used to be incredibly commonplace throughout uh, southern and western Virginia and, and much of rural America. Basically, they're buildings where people can come in with uh, the bounty of their own gardens or what they've purchased from other farmers, and they can, they can cook them, they can can them, they can preserve them in any number of ways. Most of those have disappeared, but fortunately, Russell County, Virginia, where you are, has maintained its cannery. So it is this this place of common purpose, basically. So so let me ask you to wrap us up, to take us home with um, a real quick kind of recitation of what you said to me in one of our exchanges about this idea that we're all a, a little bit too eager or at least inclined to listen to distorting voices you, you talked about that, that devalue other people. Um, tell, tell me what you're thinking about that and, and what the antidote is. Well, the antidote, I think, is to make efforts uh, to be vulnerable, uh, to find people, uh, be willing to be around people that might think differently and eat differently uh, have different life experiences. So a willingness to be with the other, to be uncomfortable, I think is very important. And also uh, the willingness to listen, to hear people out, to restate their positions, 
uh, to understand where they're coming from. Um, listening is really important. So again, creating those opportunities, uh, putting yourself in places, sometimes it's uncomfortable to bump shoulders with people uh, that you wouldn't otherwise meet, trying to understand their positions. Yeah, I heard you, I heard you say earlier that you're restating their positions in the best light. And that's yeah. such a radical and brilliant notion because actually most of us do precisely the opposite. If we restate their position, it's to show them how flawed and idiotic it is. And you're saying, no, 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 let's find the truth in what they're saying. Let's find the insight that we hadn't uh, thought of ourselves. Well, like it or not, we're in this together. A hundred percent. Well, Richard, it's been a great pleasure speaking to you, as it, as it is when we see each other at the market and otherwise. I've been thrilled to have my guest today on Two Worlds, One Country, Richard Moyer. I could call him Dr. Richard Moyer. He's a professor of biology and a full-time, diverse, commercial, organic farmer in southwestern Virginia. Richard, thanks so much for sharing your experience and your insights with us. And thank you, Anthony, for your encouragement through the years, your example as well. You bet. Take care.